morning to each one of you. It's good to be here. Um, this isn't the most, standing up here isn't the most comfortable place for me, but it is reassuring to see so many friendly, encouraging faces. Um, as an introduction, a uh, question to get you thinking a little bit. Uh, what passage of scripture would you say is the most complete, um, yet concise, if that's possible, uh, description of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, what are some scriptures that come to mind? Um, when I think about this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount comes to mind, uh, just Jesus' very own words on, some of, on so many areas of life. Uh, of course, 1 Corinthians 13, which we looked at in a Sunday school lesson two or three weeks ago. Um, what's really the most important thing in life, uh, Ephesians 4, um, how do we live worthy of our calling, um, and Romans 12, uh, how do we live as a, as a living sacrifice, and Romans 12 is what I want to look at this morning, and I don't know that that's the most complete uh, passage, but it, it's a very good one on what it means to live as a Christian. And when I read scriptures like these that I mentioned, um, I just think, wow, if only I could live these out, uh, if only we could all live them out, wouldn't that solve so many problems um, in my life and in our lives? Um, I think what I really like about these scriptures is that they bring clarity to life. There's a lot of things that are confusing and um, hard to understand about life. But these scriptures show us what really matters to God, what's really important, and what does he really want from us. Um, this might be foolish, but just to try to give a 30-second um, summary of Romans up to chapter 12, uh, in the first couple chapters, uh, Paul talks about the sinfulness of man, how both the pagan and the religious Jew are sinful, all have sinned. And then he presents God's plan of salvation, uh, justification by faith, and how we can be reconciled to God. And then he talks about chapter 7, you know, what it's like to be struggling with sin. And, and then chapter 8, what it means to live by the power of the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about uh, some of the later chapters, how Israel rejected God, or rejected Jesus, and somehow through that, uh, it, salvation was made available to the Gentiles. And he talks about how it's like an olive tree where branches were broken off and others were grafted in. And at the end of chapter 11, he has this doxology. And I'll just read that here. Uh, chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, that it, and it should be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And it seems to me like... Paul is just kind of stepping back after he explained all of these complicated things and how God worked all this out to bring salvation to us. He steps back and he just, um, just kind of in amazement 
at everything that God has done and his mercy to us. And then in chapter 12, it seems like he turns a little more practical uh, in his teaching. And I've divided this chapter into three sections. Verses 1 and 2, um, living as a sacrifice. And then verses 3 through 8, uh, living as a body. And then 9 through the rest, end of the chapter, living in love. Um, most of the memorization, Bible memorization I've ever done in school or since school has been the King James Version. But when I have my own personal devotions, I always read the NIV. And I don't really like the fact that I straddle these two versions like that, but that's the way it is. And so some of my verses are from one or the other, and I hope that's not too distracting. But. So in the first two verses, there's four questions that are answered. What should we do? Why should we do it? How should we do it? And what is the result if we do this? Um, in verse 1 it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And uh, continuing on through verse 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Paul reminds us that our bodies really are not our own. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Um, kind of the, the mental picture I get of a living sacrifice is, you know, we, we are so committed to God that we're willing to crawl up on the altar and just give ourselves to God. And then he says, well, wait a minute. You know, I've got some work for you to do, okay? You're all sacrificed to, to me, but here, why don't you go live and fully committed to me? Um, kind of as a illustration of, of this, I've, I've thought of 1 Samuel 1. Um, you can turn there if you want. I won't read it. It's a familiar story. But um, there was a man named Elkanah who had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And like another familiar story involving two wives, Rachel and Leah, there was a lot of tension and jealousy and conflict in this home. And we know that Penina had many children, but Hannah couldn't have any. And that was a big source of tension between them. And my parents taught me that when one of my siblings starts crying, that my teasing has probably gone too far. Um, but Penina never learned that, or else she didn't care. Because she provoked Hannah, um, irritated her to the point that she was crying about the fact that she couldn't have any children, and Penina could. And she was so distraught that she wouldn't eat, and Elkanah, her husband, realized, noticed this. And the Bible says he loved her, and he tried to console her. He said, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? 
and that didn't work apparently. She was still distraught and weeping. And it says um, in First Samuel 1, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she promised God that if, if God would give her a son, that she would give him back to God. And, of course, God heard her prayer and promised her that, that he would give her a son. And, and she had a son. And when he was weaned, uh, she took him back to the tabernacle and gave him back to the service of God. And that must have been quite young, and it's amazing that she did that. But um, there's several lessons we could learn from this. And in our Sunday school uh, lesson, Joe made a parallel between Samuel and um, Hannah and Jesus and Mary. Um, but the lesson that I want us to, to think about here is a comparison between our spiritual lives and, and Samuel. Hannah recognized that Samuel was entirely the result of God's blessing, and, and so she gave him back fully to God. Um, our spiritual life, our salvation, is entirely the result of God's mercy. We couldn't save ourselves any more than Hannah could have children, probably less so. Um, and what's more, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, it says in Romans 5.8. You know, Hannah, she promised God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Uh, and God gave her a son. We, made, we, had no, we had no commitment to God. Jesus uh, sacrificed himself for us uh, while we were yet sinners. There was no vow, no commitment on our part, and yet he still did it. Um, Hannah gave God what was rightfully hers. How much more should we give our lives totally to God? Um, is a living sacrifice in response to what he's done for us. So the second question, why should, we, why should we give ourselves as a living sacrifice? And we've already talked about this a little bit, but because of God's mercy toward us. I says in, in verse 1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, or in light of God's mercy, because of God's mercy. And there's, there's two parts to understanding God's mercy, I think. One is our hopelessness, understanding our own condition, and also understanding the uh, amazing, how amazing God's sacrifice for us is. Uh, in Ephesians 2.12, Paul says, um, referring to a time when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and um, alienated from God, he says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel as strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I was talking to a friend of mine one time, and um, he told me that he didn't, he couldn't believe in God um, and serve God just to avoid punishment. Um, and what kind of a God, a loving God, would threaten people with punishment to get them to serve Him anyway? And I doubt I had a very good response for him. But uh, Hebrews two three has a very different perspective. Um, here Paul is talking about Jesus coming and about how he, there were witnesses that confirmed what Jesus himself said. There were, the Holy Spirit gave gifts. There were miracles. And he says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? So, He's saying, how, what, what hope do we have if we neglect this salvation? 
Um, so what's the difference in these two perspectives? I think it comes down to the, our perspective on the state of man, uh, condition of man. If man is basically good, then who is God to condemn him and uh, punish him? But if man is sinful and without hope, then um, who are we to scorn God's great salvation that he has offered to us and his amazing love? Uh, it's no secret that it's hard to help somebody who doesn't know they need help. And if we don't understand our hopeless condition, then we're not going to appreciate God's, God's mercy. So, that's our hopelessness. Now, what about Christ's sacrifice for us? Um, what did God give, what did Jesus give up? What did he put up with uh, in his time here on earth? Uh, Philippians 2.5 is a familiar uh, verse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought not rather to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus was equal with God, and yet he didn't cling to that. He didn't um, grasp that, but he voluntarily gave it up uh, to be a human. And as a human, he put up with a lot of limitations and headache and heartache, I'm sure. We know that. Um, he took on a human body with all of its limitations and pain. Um, he put up with temptation. He put up with loneliness. And I think one of the uh, best examples of this was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and was feeling the, the weight of what he was going to experience, and none of his disciples could even stay awake with him to pray. Um, he put up with misunderstanding and rejection. Uh, in John 12, uh, it talks a little bit about this. It says in verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. And then it goes on a little later, and it says that yet at that same time, um, some of them, uh, some of the leaders did believe him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be cast out of the synagogue uh, because they loved, the hu loved human praise more than praise from God. So many rejected him, and even those that did accept him uh, were too frightened to acknowledge it. Um, his very own family misunderstood him. His brothers told him, why don't you go down to Judea um, so that your disciples can see the works you do. Um, nobody who wants to be a public figure does all this amazing stuff in secret. And it says, for, his, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. In John 7. And then he, he felt a lot of rejection, I'm sure. He had all the answers, and yet so many people just didn't understand it, didn't see it. In Luke 13:34, um, is when he's looking over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. So when we look at our hopelessness, and, and this is not even looking at Jesus' death on the cross. Um, we looked at that recently at communion. 
Um, but when you look at our hopelessness and, and Jesus' sacrifice, you know, the only reasonable thing is, like it says in verse 1, to just give our bodies as a living sacrifice completely to, to the service of Jesus. Um, one of my favorite quotes from a preacher is what Wesley King said here several years ago. He said, we owe our flesh nothing, but we owe Christ everything. And I think that sums this up well. So the third question, how do we do this? Um, in verse 2, he says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. That's the first part. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what is the pattern of the world, as it says in the NIV? Um, uh, you know, the blueprint, the, the recipe, uh, the mold. Don't be pressed into the world's mold. Don't follow their pattern. Um, we don't really need to look any farther than our neighbors, the news, or even our own, our own selfish desires to see what the pattern of the world is. Um, at its root, I think it's mostly selfishness. Um, just doing what feels good to us. Solomon was a good example of this. He gave himself everything he wanted, and yet in the end he felt empty. Um, not everybody who doesn't, uh, or not everyone who follows the pattern of the world is entirely selfish. Um, there's man-centered ethics. I had a professor once that talked a lot about doing well by doing good, basically um, doing things for the, the good of the greater, the big, the largest group, um, and that would help your business do well if you if you did good to other people. But whether it's uh, unrestrained selfishness or this man-centered ethics, I think uh, the pattern of the world is wrongly placing God over man or putting a, an over-importance on, on man and man's good over, over God and what he commands. So we have the pattern of the world and we're, we should not conform to that but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Um, I think this is one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. To be tr it says, it's like given as a command, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and yet Renewing our mind, I don't think, is something we can just do on our own. It requires an act of God, um, and yet it is given as a command. Titus 3, 5 through 6 says, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something we can just come up with on our own. And yet Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 talks about um, it's comparing a husband and wife relationship to Christ loving the church. And he, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. And then this is the part of, of the focus on cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So there is also a sense where we are renewed, are, are cleansed, our minds are cleansed as we spend time in God's Word. And that is something that we have a part in. Um, we can control how much time we spend in God's Word.
uh, this whole thing of conforming to the pattern of the world can be kind of subtle. Um, we can feel good uh, when we compare ourselves with those around us, our neighbors. Maybe we don't have all the problems that we see in their lives. Um, however, that's probably not the, that shouldn't be the basis for our determining whether we're conforming to the world or not. Uh, it's very easy for attitudes and ideas of the world to slip into our lives. Um, my students know that whenever they have a question about math, that the first thing I want to do is I want to look at their book and say, did you copy the question down correctly from your book? Because no amount of uh, neat work and derivations and accurate calculations will do any good if we wrote the problem down wrong and we're starting from the wrong place. So we always go back to the book first. And it's the same way in our own Christian lives. If we're not regularly going back to God's Word and checking up on ourselves, we are certain to go astray. And this would be true for a church, but I'm not thinking of it in that sense so much as in our own personal lives. Are we spending lots of time renewing our minds in God's Word and making sure our lives are lining up with what, he's, what He commands of us? So what is the result of this um, when we give ourselves as a living sacrifice and we renew our minds? Um, well, I think it's given in, in the end of verse 2 that we will be able to test and approve what God's will is. We will be able to please God. Um, we will know God's will and, and accomplish it. And what would we want to do more than please God? Um, Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Um, before we leave this uh, first section here about a living sacrifice, um, there's a story that Francis Chan tells about a, I think it's the father of, of a lady that went to his church his name was Nathan Barlow, and he was a medical doctor who worked in Ethiopia for 60 years. And he treated a condition known as mossy foot, which the uh, native people got um, from working in the volcanic ash. And it made ulcers on their legs and feet, and they were kind of an out outcast, just like lepers were. And once Nathan had a toothache, which became so bad that he had to be flown uh, away from the mission field to another city, uh, so that he could receive medical attention. And when he got to the dentist, and the dentist was working on his mouth, he told the dentist to pull all his teeth out and give him false teeth because he never wanted to have to leave the mission field again for his teeth. And if that's not giving your body as a living sacrifice, I don't know what is. Um, I don't know if I could go that far, but we could admire him as example. All right. Um, we won't spend as long on all the other sections as we did on those first two verses. But the second section, living as a body. Uh, let's just read verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, 
So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Um, there's two things that I think we can learn from these verses. The first is not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Um, just as the parts of our body have many different functions, so the members of the church have many different functions. And we are not to be proud of our function or look down on anyone else for their function. Uh, do we ever find ourselves telling others how busy we are or how difficult our job is? Do we only enjoy serving others if um, it is in a place where other people notice? Do we feel threatened by criticism of our job or by others who might be able to do it better than we can? Uh, if so, then maybe we are doing our job for the praise of men and rather than for the good of the body. And maybe we should um, look at this and see if, if maybe we're thinking of ourselves too highly than we ought to. The other, the other big takeaway from these verses, I think, is just not to neglect the gifts that we've been given. Every one of us has something to contribute, and um, you know he says if it's if it's prophesying, let him let him use it. If it's teaching, teach. If it's serving, serve. Um, whatever your gift is, use it. Uh, a few, uh, quite a few years ago, somebody told me that he wishes he could play on a basketball team with four other people just like himself. If that's how you feel about church life. Well, then you should probably go back and read verse 3 again. Um, everybody has a different job, and everybody is valuable in their own unique way. 1 Corinthians 12 uh, talks about spiritual gifts and says, you know, if everybody was an eye, where would the hearing be? And if everybody was an ear, if every part of your body was an ear, where would the smell be? Um, it takes a bunch of different kinds of people working together to make a body work, and same is true in the church. Um, and yet, we are all trying to become more Christ-like. Um, in that sense, we do. We don't all. We don't want a church full of Rickies, but we do want a church full of little Christs and a, a body that together is is the body of Christ. And Ephesians four uh, eleven talks about that. Eleven to fourteen talks about how the spiritual gifts uh, were given so that we could attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Um, so that is the goal. All right, moving on to the last section, verses 9 through 21, living in love. And the very first thing he, he says here is that love must be sincere, or let love be without dissimulation. Um, we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that if it's not true love, um, if our actions aren't out of genuine love, that it's, it means nothing. Um, so sticking with the body analogy, I, I like to think of love as like the, you can think of it as the cartilage that you know, keeps everything 
running smoothly, keeps things from grating on each other when all the work's getting done. Um, or if you're a mechanic, maybe it would be the, the oil that keeps all the parts running smoothly and everything just works like clockwork. Um, so sincere love is really the key to accomplishing all of these other commands that he gives in the rest of the chapter. In verse 9, he says, okay, at the end of verse 9 there, he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. He doesn't say avoid evil most of the time. He doesn't say avoid evil things, avoid doing evil things, but think about them. He doesn't say avoid doing evil things yourself, but enjoy watching others do them. He doesn't say avoid evil, but find pleasure in reading about evil things or enjoying songs about evil lifestyles. No, he says, hate evil. And that's an attitude. Um, that's a very high standard. Uh, hating evil and clinging to what is good comes from a renewed mind, I believe. But at the same time, the more we hate evil and the more we cling to what is good, then the more our disgust for evil will grow and the more our appreciation for what is good will grow. So I think it feeds, one victory feeds on another in, in, in the same way uh, one defeat feeds on another, or leads to another. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And I think this is just talking about unselfishness, um, looking out for the good of others. Verse 11, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. And uh, in King James it says, not slothful in business. And I think basically what he's saying is don't be lazy. Um, I don't think Lowell likes lazy strawberry pickers. And I doubt you moms like lazy children. And I don't like lazy students. And I doubt God likes, I know God doesn't like lazy Christians. Uh, people who aren't serious about serving Him, uh, people who are distracted and um, just not giving it all they've got. Um, God doesn't want us to be lazy. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Thinking back to these first two ver verses that we spent some time on, now we have an awful lot to be joyful about. We have hope for eternity. Um, so we should be joyful people. Patience in affliction. Um, I don't really feel qualified to, to tell you to be patient in affliction because I haven't experienced uh, nearly as much affliction as most of you. But, but we know that God is faithful and will give us strength for affliction. And we should be faithful in prayer. Um, are there things that trouble us? Uh, if you're like me, there's a lot of things that aren't quite like you wish they would be and things you don't feel really good about and you'd like to see different. Well, are we praying about those things? Are we faithful in prayer? Um, it brings to mind the song, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Verse 13, Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Um, Going back to Ephesians 4, verse 28, 
Paul says, let him that stole steal no more, but let, rather let him labor working with his hand the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Um, the point of working hard is not so much that we can have money to live a life of ease or to spend it on ourselves, but that we can give to others and meet the needs around us. Um, Jesus sets the record straight on on that in his parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Um, wealth is very dangerous if we're not rich towards God. Um, and then practice hospitality. And I think, um, you know, we should practice hospitality to people within our own church. Uh, we can we can attend church together and not really know each other all that well. Um, informal visiting builds relationships and friendships. And I think when we have these close friendships, then um, we're not going to be quick to assume bad motives uh, for what people do or say. And we're also not going to be quick to dismiss the thoughts and opinions of our brothers if we have a good relationship with them. And so I think it's important that we show lots of hospitality to each other and just inviting each other over for meals um, and getting to know each other. Hospitality to visitors is also important. Uh, some of the most, some of my best memories of traveling uh, is being warmly welcomed into somebody's home. And you can probably identify with that. And what makes a home just feel so welcoming and I, I think it's just a higher value being placed on the visitor than on the home itself. You know, nothing kills hospitality like um, pointing out that you just tracked mud on my carpet or, you know, repeatedly looking at your watch after uh, dinner. Um, Proverbs 15, 17 says, Better is a dinner with, of herbs where love is than a stalled ox or a fatted calf uh, and hatred therewith. So it's the attitude, not the food, that makes um, hospitality great, I think. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Um, you know, the selfless act of Dirk Willems rescuing his pursuer from the ice is uh, memorialized on the front of Martyr's Mirror. And do we really have that same attitude toward everyone that offends us or hurts us. Something to think about. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Now our ability to rejoice at the success of others tells us something about our attitude towards that person. If we can't do that, um, there's a good chance we don't have the right attitude towards them. And can we feel the pain of others? If not, we need to look at our attitudes toward the, that person. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. He meant, Paul mentions uh, this three times in this chapter uh, about pride and being conceited. Um, it seems like if there's one thing that can really mess up relationships, it's, it's this, being proud. Um, he talks about it here, and in verse 3, he says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And, um, yeah, verse 14, he mentions it twice. 
Do not be proud and do not be conceited. And then verse 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, We may not take revenge. We may just leave it in God's hands, let him take care of it. But we may find some satisfaction in hoping that God will make someone pay for what they did to us um, and how they hurt us. In the Lord's Prayer, there's a phrase that should make us all consider our attitudes very carefully. Matthew 6:12 says, "And forgive us our debtors as we and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors." Can we honestly pray that with ill will towards anyone? Um, to pray the Lord's Prayer with holding something against somebody would be like saying to God, you know, I want you to forgive me, but, um, you know, hope for my downfall or hope for some judgment for what I've done. Um, We don't want God to hold anything against us. Uh, We want all our sins forgiven, and that's how we need to be towards others. Um, To withhold forgiveness from anyone would be like being the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, who quickly forgot what huge debt he had been forgiven and then demanded that the little debt be paid um, him from his own servant. Um, To wish judgment on somebody would be to be like Jesus' disciples, James and John, who, after they were rejected in a Samaritan village, they wanted to call down fire um, and destroy them. And uh, Jesus said... um, The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So what what do we do when there's not peace? Um, I think verse 18 is clear that we need to do everything within our own power. Um, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But it, it must not always be possible, because he says, if it is possible... But he makes it clear what kind of an attitude we must have to do our part to make for peace. Um, so if you ever find yourselves discouraged by the evil in the world or in your own heart, uh, things that aren't what they ought to be, um, don't respond in the same way as, as, what you, as the, the evil you see. Um, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So wrapping this up, just a brief conclusion here. Uh, in the first section, we looked at living as a sacrifice. Um, show, our, show our gratitude to God by giving our life fully to Him. Uh, that's, that's our only reasonable response. And uh, to live as a healthy body, we must not be proud. We must value every, every gift and every um, function and every person uh, in our in our church, in our body. And finally, live in love. We must love everyone. And um, 
I was just struck after I, after I prepared this, how, how hard it is to actually live this. Um, I think we all agree this is what we need to do. Uh, living it out every day is a challenge. And so God bless each of you as you try to live this out in your daily life.